Blessed Pierre Giorgio Frassati once said, all around the sick and all around the poor, I see a special light which we do not have. Welcome to the eighth episode of St. Diphna's Playbook, the SDP if you want to be cool, and to be fair, the SDP's kind of been taken off that acronym. My name is Tommy, I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth, one in heaven, love you Luke, and I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health, because those who are sick, those who are poor, and those who suffer with their mental health have something special to give us if only we're willing to walk with them. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dimpna's Mentions. First up, Cecilia stopped by with this one, quote, Do you think you could talk about what to do when mental health issues, church-related trauma, are causing difficulty with the authority structures in the church and or receiving the sacraments? Thanks so much for checking in, Cecilia, and for asking a question plaguing so many within our church these days, as we've seen, because lots of people have asked this question. Trauma and abuse often leads to those who have experienced it to have difficulty with people in power, and rightfully so. At some time in their life, someone who was supposed to respect them, take care of them, violated that trust, and how could anyone expect them to move forward in life without having any difficulty being in relationship to those in authority moving forward? This is true of people having difficulty relating to God the Father after being abused by father figures in their life, and perhaps even more apropos to our current time, people who have been abused at the hands of the church then being expected to submit to the authority of the church moving forward. How could anyone do that? How could anyone fault someone for struggling with the authority of the church after they've been let down by it, or even worse, abused by those holding positions of authority? And yet, as you mentioned, the sacraments exist for our sanctification, concretely help us grow in holiness, and were instituted by Christ himself to help keep us on the narrow path. So what do we do? First, let's recognize that God is willing to meet us where we're at and slowly through his grace, move us closer than ever, closer than we ever would have imagined we could get. When my son died, I deeply felt I would be unable to be close to God ever again because I was so angry at him, so broken that he would allow something like this to happen. It was, it was the point, I got to the point where I couldn't even recite the Gloria at Mass because saying glory to God in the highest violated how I felt in the moment. It felt like a lie. I didn't see a path back to the same kind of faith I had before. Slowly but surely, however, at a pace where I didn't even really recognize it was happening, he brought me not just back to where I was, but closer than I had ever been. And contrary to what I could have imagined, my faith is stronger than ever, not in spite of my heartbreak, but because of it. So if you feel you can't even step foot in a Catholic church because of trauma or other incredibly negative experiences, start with what you can do. Can you have the Eucharist brought to you on account of your mental health keeping you from being able to attend Mass? Or even take a, take a step further back. Can you take up reading scripture or praying the rosary or praying the office? Can you read the, the office, not the show, the divine office, right? The liturgy of the hours. Can you read the lives of some of the saints who've experienced abuse, trauma, and terrible situations and somehow were brought closer to God through his mysterious grace? Start wherever you can and be willing to tell the Holy Spirit you will go where he gives you the power to go. You will move forward as he empowers you to move forward. And even if you don't believe it'll happen, just welcome him into your heart to take control and let's see where he takes you. My absolute favorite, Dorothy Day, would repeat the same prayer over and over and over again. 
Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Let that become our mantra as we ask him to strengthen us. Next up, Anonymous got right to the point, quote, how long is it normal to grieve a traumatic death? Would I be a terrible therapist if I just said forever? Time heals all wounds is phony. Time makes it different, but the pain and heartbreak of a traumatic death never goes away. Now, since I'm a therapist, I'll shift to the point of the uh, to point out the educated answer to your question here. Prior to the release of the DSM-5, the brand spanking new edition of the Mental Health Disorders book and how to diagnose them, the length of time for normal bereavement was two months. And by that, I mean clinicians were advised not to give someone a diagnosis of major depression unless their symptoms persisted for two months more two months after the death of a loved one if uh, it was under two months away from the event they were given the bereavement exclusion as we like to say and their symptoms were considered normal however the new dsm has done away with the bereavement exclusion because in reality it led to those suffering symptoms of major depression in the context of a loss being kept out of treatment because they weren't given the diagnosis now if you meet the criteria for depression you can get the diagnosis independent of being in a state of bereavement and i think that's important not only because it opens up treatments to treatment to more folks thanks to being able to appease our insurance industry with a big bad depression diagnosis but also because it shows that we should take bereavement seriously and that we shouldn't expect things to resolve all nice and tidy after just eight weeks. I would consider this, if you find yourself crying occasionally but still going to work, still showering, still engaging in social relationships, uh, it's most likely normal, healthy, and okay at any point. However, if you get to a point where grief is dominating your life when it feels like it shouldn't anymore, then perhaps it's time to seek counseling. It doesn't necessarily mean that you want to stop grieving, but if you're having trouble coping with normal life stuff, it might mean it's time to seek help in getting back to a new normal. My mom died in 2006, and I still grieve the loss. Our son died in 2016, and I still feel broken almost every single day because of the grief. So I'll ask for your prayers, and I'll be praying for you too. Each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm here to introduce you to Saint Mark G. Tianjiang. Raised in a Christian family in the 19th century China, Xi was a doctor who helped the poor and a well-known and well-respected Christian in his area. After contracting a stomach ailment, he treated himself with opium, which was like the normal treatment at the time. But as we see with the opioid crisis in our own country today, the appropriate treatment quickly turned into an addiction for Xi. And again, like our current problem, opium addiction was a shame in the 19th century China which led to him being ostracized from the communities he was once respected in. Xi continued to try and stay sober. He went to confession again and again, but as he kept confessing the same sin, his parish priest eventually put an end to the sacrament, saying Xi had no firm purpose of amendment or desire to do better. Obviously, the priest didn't understand addiction, but let's not blame him considering the context of the time and how they viewed addiction back then. Because of this, however, Xi was unable to receive the Eucharist, and yet he never left the church. He continued to struggle, continued to try and stay sober, and continued to show up to Mass for 30 years, even though he was unable to receive our Lord's body and blood. In the, 1900, in the year 1900, he was rounded up, 
with other Christians during the Boxer Rebellion, and despite never being able to beat his addiction, he held fast to Christ even in the face of torture and being dragged to his execution. He was killed while singing the litany of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And even though he was away from the sacrament for 30 plus years and never achieved that sobriety and recovery he fought so hard for, he stands today as one of our most inspiring canonized saints. Let that be a story that touches the hearts of all of us who struggle with the disease of addiction, all of us who fall again and again into the same sin, and all of us who feel kept away from the Eucharist. There is always hope in Christ Jesus. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer, so let's do it. Glorious St. Mark, holy martyr of China, you are the patron saint of drug addicts because for many years you struggled with the effects of opium addiction, which affected every aspect of your life. Yet despite this, you never gave up trying and praying, and in heaven, God has rewarded your perseverance. Dear Saint, you know better than anyone the great tribulations that come with addiction. Look with compassion upon all drug addicts throughout the world and deliver them from their bondage. Strengthen them in their recovery and help them resist their temptations. Obtain from God that drug addicts everywhere may receive the support and compassion they deserve and may all, through the grace of God, be restored to full health. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Before I get started, a quick follow-up from something from last episode. A listener asked, how do I know when I need to get help? And my wife reminded me that I should have pointed out that starting therapy isn't like a commitment where you have to go for six months without quitting, so you sure better figure out when it's the right time to go or not. You can go once, three times for a year, whatever works for you in your situation. So if you're asking yourself, is it time to get help or not... Maybe just try it. Go once, go twice, see how it feels. Try a different therapist if you didn't click with the one you started with. Then continue on or not if you aren't feeling it. It's all good, okay? So I just want everybody to know that. Okay, first up, Aaron. My oldest kids are in therapy for anxiety-related issues, and one of the therapists was blaming some of it on not having enough individual time because we have four living children. My gut said that was BS because I was totally stuck in that listen-to-the-professional mode. But after texting my friend, who is also a therapist and a mom of six, she said to call out the counselor by saying there were cultural differences she was failing to acknowledge. Having that script helped me have a much better working relationship going forward with my kid's therapist. Aaron, I'm so sorry you had this experience initially with a the therapist, but I'm also over the moon that you decided to circle back and address the situation, mostly because even me, a therapist, wimps out and listens to the professionals when I'm in the chair of the patient. When a doctor or a therapist or a nurse at the hospital suggests something, I I just nod my head and then after they walk out I feel like an idiot for not standing up for myself or my kids or for not sharing my feelings about the treatment plan it's tough to speak up to be empowered as a patient so I just had to say how proud I am of you it is so important to help teach our therapists about our culture about our beliefs and about in this example the reason why we love having a large family and the benefits we see from having a large family I mean my wife and I have four living children just like you and I think like you we work hard to consider 
consider how to give each of our kids the attention and individual time they need. And while someone who doesn't have that many kids may look at us and assume it isn't possible, they would be wrong. And it helps to correct their assumption and misunderstanding, not only for me and for you, but for the next patient that comes in the door. You sound like a wonderful parent. And again, I'm so impressed that you were able to take the advice of your friend, say your piece. And the fact that you came away with a good working relationship with the therapist is a great example to all of us that speaking up for ourselves with health professionals doesn't always end the way our brain makes us fear it will end. So thanks for sharing. Next up, Anonymous. Quote, I am a Catholic who during my first pregnancy received a devastating fatal prenatal diagnosis. Due to the overwhelming fear and our own weakness, my husband and I chose not to continue the pregnancy. I've been to confession, but still struggle with anger at God for the whole situation, as well as guilt and shame. The resources I found on miscarriage don't really seem to apply to me since we were faced with the awful choice, but the Catholic resources I have found aimed at post-abortive women also don't seem like a good fit. Any thoughts or resources that you've come across that might be helpful? I'd like everyone listening to pause with me, please, and uh, let's pray for this listener, her husband, and her baby. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. I feel so humbled and blessed that you reached out to share your story. Most of our listeners know that my wife and I received a prenatal diagnosis incompatible with life when my wife was pregnant with our fourth son, Luke. And while we chose a different path, I want to be so very, very clear here. I understand so deeply why you and your husband made this choice. When we sat in the room with the perinatologist as he confirmed the diagnosis and he reviewed our options, I wanted nothing more than to rip this page out of my family's story. I wanted to be able to walk out of that office and not have to worry about or think about the incredibly painful and acutely heartbreaking event that was unfolding before my eyes. I had no ability to change what was happening and no faith in myself that I'd be able to survive the intensity of the situation. And I just wanted to escape. And I say all of that just to let you know that I don't judge you for the choice you made, and I want everyone listening to realize that they have no right to judge you either. Being in that situation opened my eyes to why people make the choices they make, and many of us pro-lifers don't understand why they would make them. Many of us, including me prior to that moment, are so black and white in regards to abortion, and yes, abortion is a sin. I'm not saying it isn't, but what I'm saying is, instead of thinking it's easy to make the right choice in this situation, be willing to listen to those who have been in it, both those who have carried on the pregnancy because of love of their child and those who have chosen differently, often because of that exact same love. Again, I'm not saying abortion isn't a sin. It is. But we are called not to judge. And we have to remember that if we're going to be there to support people and to walk with them through these difficult times, we need to listen to them and be open to their experience. About confession, yes, I totally know this feeling, this intellectually knowing God has forgiven me but not feeling it in my heart. I'm often left feeling like I need to be punished or something in order to be forgiven or to endure something terrible to make up for what I've done. But this isn't the message of the gospel. This isn't the way Jesus operates. Remember this, all sin, every incredibly horrible and terrible thing ever done in the history of the world, all of it began to be undone by a teenage girl saying yes, a to that point unknown girl saying fiat. It changed everything, kicked off the forgiveness of all sin. It was that easy, that small, 
that seemingly insignificant. God forgives you. God's mercy is unfathomable. Let it seep into your heart. And when you have times where you aren't feeling it, bring out the powerful but short Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Okay, last resources. Yes, I have to agree that none of the resources available that I know of quite fit the pain and spiritual struggle you're dealing with. When we experienced the death of our son, the resources we found didn't feel like a perfect fit either. But there were some aspects in all of them that were helpful. Using the parts that work, like portions on confession and forgiving yourself or on the grief journey or how to honor the baby, while leaving the unhelpful parts for your situation to the side is a great way to move forward. For the whole in the other resources, imagine an acquaintance of yours that you confided in um, having the same thing happen to them. Imagine them just as scared and as broken as you were. What would you tell them? Write it down. All of the resources out there came from someone saying, why is there nothing out there? You might not be able to share it with the masses, but know that there are women all around you who wished that there was the same resource you're looking for right now. I wish I could give you a hug right now, Anonymous. Please take care of yourself and know that I'll be praying for you. Uh, last up, another anonymous listener wraps us up with our final question. I'm wondering at what point remembering and reliving painful events from the past becomes problematic. If you've forgiven a friend or a significant other for past events and resumed a healthy relationship with them, what do you do when months later you're still stuck going over and over what happened and feeling hurt all over again? Is that normal? Or how can you just get rid of these intrusive thoughts when you just want to be happy again, but instead you're stuck feeling insecure and anxious that the bad will happen again even when everything is good totally normal or at least i hope so because it happens to me all the time let me step right up to the plate and say this as clearly as i can intrusive thoughts cannot be stopped they come without our will being engaged they pop into our head automatically often not being in line with what we really feel in our hearts intense anger frustration over past hurts we've already forgiven thoughts about immoral acts or terrible things we picture saying to someone they all just pop in our heads without us wanting them to be there so first be at ease that these aren't sinful we have no control over them but once they pop into our minds and we engage our will to embrace them or confront them this is where the real work is done do we say nope when impure thoughts pop into our brain? Do we say get out of here when hateful thoughts about others jump into our minds without us wanting to be there? Do we say no, I've forgiven that person when reminders of the hurt pop up in the months following our forgiving them? That's where the meat and potatoes lies. Sorry, I'm Irish. I use meat and potatoes metaphors. That's where the meat and potatoes lies in what we do with intrusive thoughts once we engage them. So it kind of sucks that there isn't a secret weapon for blocking intrusive thoughts before they hit us. But hopefully it puts all of us at peace to know that they happen to everyone. They're normal, and we can choose to do something about them when they pop up. I pray. I focus on something outside of my thoughts. I look around at nature or the things around me and focus on them. Remember, you have forgiven this person. As you said, you're happy and everything is going fine. Let the thoughts pop up and then tell them to get the heck out of here. One way, uh, one way is to kind of laugh them off sarcastically like, oh yeah, I would totally do that, which takes away their power. And another way would be to directly confront them. Them. I know this isn't who I am or what I want because I do X and I want X instead. So be at peace. Intrusive thoughts don't mean that there's some secret hatred deep down in your heart trying to get out. It's just a part of our stupid human nature. Thanks, Adam and Eve. 
All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in the future. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you, and so will St. Dymphna.